I don't usually have the opportunity to introduce or to listen live to our, uh, our speakers, but today I get that opportunity. Um, just want you to know, your generous giving makes it possible for us to have a full-time youth pastor. Uh, most churches in northern Michigan don't have that privilege, that luxury. We're blessed and I'm also blessed to say we have one of the best. Uh, Lord's using Pastor Brandt and the youth ministry in powerful ways. So as he comes, would you just say, hey, Brandt, we're glad you're here. We're, we're, we're grateful the Lord's using you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's, it's really exciting and humbling to be here. As much as I love this, there's something um, awesome about being up here, and uh, I just got to say, um, this is, I don't think I've ever felt, as I've been preparing, preparing for a sermon, I don't think I've ever felt so excited and so energized by the Holy Spirit, but also so inadequate to preach uh, a message. This is a, a word that the Lord has been giving me over the last couple of weeks that um, I believe is so important um, that I'm going to be bold enough to ask you to do a couple things, um, because I know it's not me speaking today. I know that the Lord wants to speak to each and every one of you guys this morning. So, oftentimes what I've found is that the more you engage with something, the more you engage with a message, the more you remember and take away, and you're able to live it out. Um, if you just sit here like a bump on a log, like this... Um, that's not very, uh, a very good way to grasp all of what God is going to be giving to you. So, uh, I'm going to be going out on a limb here and asking you to do a couple things. And I'm going to say from the beginning, it's not weird. Okay? So if you want to engage with this sermon, uh, and, and you want to you really grasp a hold of everything that God has to say to you today, I invite you, you are totally invited to say amen every once in a while. Uh, that if someone looks at you weird next to you, just go you know what? Deal with it. Uh, God is good. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you can do a couple things. So we're going to practice that. Um, on the count of three, we're all just going to say amen so that you kind of get it out of your system. It's not weird anymore. So on the count of three, one, two, three. Amen. Awesome. That was better than the first service. Well done. Uh, if you're maybe a little more shy, you don't want to say amen out loud. We had a lot of ameners in the first service, by the way. That was, that was there we go. See? I love it. It's perfect. If, if you're a little more timid, you could just do one of these. Mmm. All right, we're, we're, try that. Pick up a pen or something, or a pointy finger on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Mm, yeah. That's one of those sermons that kind of just warms you down. You know, the, the point, it gets you, you're just like, oh, wow, that was for me. Like, mm. um, or if you're just taking notes, that'll be a good hint for me, too, that the Lord is working in your heart uh, and in your mind. Because I actually really do believe that more than me speaking, uh, God is wanting to say something to you this morning. Um, as I was driving in, the parking lot this morning. It was kind of funny because a lot of people I interacted with this week or today even didn't know I was preaching and the tie didn't even give it away. Um, and so it was kind of funny because the Lord spoke to me and just like, you know what, Brent, they're not here to listen to you. They came to listen to me. And I believe that as we are people of the book, that as we are people who come every single week ready to hear what God has to say to us because that's how we live. Jesus has the words of life. Um, as we come every single week to hear what God has to say. 
Pastor Jeff and I just get the privilege of kind of moving our jaws, um, but it's God who is the one talking. Uh, God, you know, used more glorious forms of preaching before. Uh, he has preached through a donkey. He has preached and said that the stones will cry out, and so um, I know that I am in great company um, with fabulous preachers like that, um, and gives me confidence. So before we started, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I love it. We're getting rolling right now already. Before I get started, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Jesus, thanks for your amazing Holy Spirit who is with us this morning, and we pray, Lord, that um, as your word is open, it is, uh, our hearts are ready to receive uh, glory from you, God. I pray that you would meet with us this morning and you would challenge, convict, encourage every single one of our hearts um, and, uh, and use your word just to advance your kingdom this morning. Amen. Now, one of the most uh, complicated men of military history, at least in terms of the United States of America, it could be argued, was General George Smith Patton, Jr. Um, General Patton uh, was credited with much uh, success in his time as a general in the United States Army. Fought in both world wars, um, and uh, he was known for a lot of things. One of the things he was known for was his guns that he had ivory handles on. Um, and uh, he also was also known for his grumpiness. Uh, general Patton was very strict and methodical about how he liked things done, and especially when it came to his approach at war. He was very methodical, strategic, and planned out when it came to how he executed battle plans and uh, moved forward in a war. Um, and he's actually known for saying something that struck me really hard this week. Uh, wars are not won by fighting battles. He said instead, wars are won by choosing battles. They're not won by fighting battles, they're won by choosing battles. And Patton was a master of strategically choosing his battles. And it was because of Patton that the Allied troops were successful in many of their campaigns in World War I and World War II. Um, in fact, one of the campaigns that, or the, the battles that General Patton fought particularly impresses me, and it wasn't even fought with guns or with tanks or with firepower. In fact, one time uh, as General Patton liberated a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, and I think I pronounced it wrong last service. I said Buchenwald, and someone said it's Birkenau. If you, if you are a veteran and you happen to know, uh, please just correct me, and I'm sorry if I butchered it, um, but uh, I think it's Birkenau. And uh, he came through and liberated this concentration camp, and the thing that he did next, I think it was particularly impressive to me, was that he had the local German population come and tour the entire camp. The entire concentration camp, which sounds kind of gruesome and morbid at first, but when you think about it, it's actually very brilliant because Hitler's on the other side of Europe at this time. And as Patton is coming through and liberating these concentration camps, he made it a practice every single time. So Birkenwald was one of these where he would have the Germans tour the concentration camp because actually in Nazi Germany at the time, Hitler was thought of as a pretty cool guy. Uh, Hitler was a celebrated hero in Nazi Germany, and not because he was rose to power by you know forcing votes and by making people like him, uh, maybe like in North Korea, but uh, he rose to power by his convincing speeches and his 
amazing rhetoric. And so people actually thought Hitler was a great guy, at least when it came to the citizens of Nazi Germany. And so by having the local Germans tour these concentration camps, Patton was actually revealing to his own people what kind of terrible, gruesome uh, morbidity their heroic leader was capable of. And in so doing, he was able to cripple Hitler on his home front while he was on the other side of Europe. By the end of World War II, this is fascinating to me, by the end of World War II, General Patton's army alone had liberated or conquered 81,522 square miles of territory. Uh, And Patton won a major part of the war not because he fought every single battle or even won every battle that he fought. He was so successful in his fighting because of the way he chose his battles. Allow me to repeat Patton's wisdom. Wars are not won by fighting battles. Wars are won by choosing battles. And the converse can also be true. The flip side is, wars are not lost by fighting battles poorly. Wars are lost by fighting the wrong battles. Wars are not lost by poor fighting um, necessarily. According to Patton, they're mainly lost by fighting the wrong battles. And when you're in the wrong battle and you're fighting well, you're actually losing ground. Don't expect praise when you're fighting well in the wrong battle, right? Um, You could be fighting the best, most effectively you've ever fought, but if you're in the wrong battle, you're losing ground. And ultimately, you'll lose the war. The many battles that we fight every day for our own kingdoms, our own interests, oftentimes lose us ground in God's mission to advance His kingdom. We often, when we fight our own battles like this, we often lose our witness in God's kingdom. How many of you guys um, are on Facebook? Anyone here on Facebook? Okay, a couple of you. The rest of you are liars. Okay, okay, a different sermon here. Um, just kidding. Um, I have some Facebook pet peeves. Do you guys have Facebook pet peeves at all? There's a couple pet peeves of mine. One of them is uh, if I have a message and I don't want to respond to it yet, I'll, like, I'll leave the little one red notification there, but sometimes my wife will go check to see what it's about, and then I'm like, don't have the notification, and then I forget that the message is there, and I'm like, ah, oh, come on, like, I forgot. Um, that's, a, that's a Facebook pet peeve of mine. Another one is uh, when someone never posts their own original thought, but they're just, like, reposting videos from other people, so it's like, check out this ninja jump, and check out this dog flopping on his back, and um, it kind of bugs me, because when I open my Facebook feed, there's just, like, all of the videos that weren't even yours, and, um, and I'm like, okay, so I have to scroll for like seven minutes to find anybody that I even know. And um, that's a Facebook pet peeve of mine. But another one of mine, maybe you guys have been seen this or maybe been a part of this, uh, is comment battles. Facebook comment section underneath a picture or underneath a status update and somebody writes something in the comment and then somebody else underneath that corrects them. And uh, if you're not on Facebook, basically it is like telling somebody how lousy they are without ever having the guts to say it to their face. And they go on for days. Um, And there are sometimes thousands of comments on something that wasn't meant to be talked about like that. And um, Facebook comment battles kind of annoy me. Um, And the last one, I I made one comment (laughs) that I knew I shouldn't have. Um, 
I, this, this kid posted a Facebook picture, this profile picture, and, and really quick, this kid, um, he was one of those, he was in a youth group that I was in a while ago, and um, he was a shy, timid kid in the back, you know, and he'd come to some of my Bible studies, and we, he was really, you know, very not outspoken about things. So I was trying to get him, get him a little more bold, more outspoken about stuff, talk about things that he cared about, talk about things that he was passionate about, get him excited about his faith. And so his name was Mario, and I remember with, with Mario, you know, the constant battle was like, hey, Mario, why don't you tell me about what's going on in your life, that kind of stuff. And, well, I come back a couple years later, and Mario's totally changed. He's become, like, bold as a lion. He's outspoken. He's, you know, talking to so many people. But the thing about Mario is that he, um, once he grabbed a hold of a fight that he could fight in, he went all for it. And so Mario started this local chapter of abortion abolitionists, uh, youth abortion abolitionists in his um, own area. And they would go to like abortion clinics and protest out in front, and they would protest out in front of businesses that supported um, pro-choice uh, uh, stuff. And Mario was just like fuming angry. And while he may have chosen a cause that some might say is noble. Uh, he, he was so angry in how he would pursue um, championing the cause of pro ch- pro-life that everybody else around him began to tune out. And I remember one time he posted a profile picture, um, and it was like his face, and it was just like, you know, it's just like, I'm really mad at you face kind of deal. And uh, across the profile picture, he had a Bible verse. And, well, half of a Bible verse, I take that. And uh, the Bible verse said, uh, it was in 1 Corinthians, and it said something to affect, and I don't remember the exact reference, um, but uh, don't you know that neither liars or thieves or murderers or adulterers or homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of heaven? Dot, 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 end quotation. And that's where the verse stopped. <laughs> and I was like, hey, Mario, how's it going, man? I haven't seen you in a while. I love the second half of that verse, too, you know, which says, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were changed, you were regenerated. And, you know, saying, hey, you know what? There's a ton of sinners in the church. But the way that he was using it on his profile picture was, you know, hey, I hate sinners and uh, they're not going to heaven. And I, I don't know if I should have commented or maybe just called him on the phone or something different. But I just said, hey, I love the second part of that verse. And then just like, he gave me like this chapter book of reasons why in the next comment below uh, of why I was wrong and that I was fighting against, you know, I was fighting for the devil and all this kind of stuff. I was like, whoa, is that what I meant at all? And it was this face, that's one of my Facebook pet peeves. But anyways, I think um, when it comes to how we fight in different battles, the battles that we pick up to fight, uh, if we're fighting in the wrong battle, we're losing ground. When we're louder about finding blame than seeking forgiveness, we're in the wrong battle. When we get angrier about a little league umpire's call than injustice in the world around us, we're in the wrong battle. When we vehemently defend the honor of our favorite sports teams uh, and let the name of Jesus be profaned around us every day, we're in the wrong battle. Uh, When we fight for our Christian issues more passionately than Christ's mission to seek and save the lost, I think we're in the wrong battle. When our verbal language says God cares about you, but our nonverbal language says, but I don't really, we're in the wrong battle. Uh, when we'd rather fight for a spot in line to catch the hot deals um, 
than invest time and energy serving the poor and seeking the lost. I think we're in the wrong battle. When our philosophy on politics is more well thought out than what we would say to a sinner who wants to know Jesus, I, th- I think we're in the wrong battle. And it's sometimes hard to hear things like that about the things we care so passionately about. Um, but if you stick with me throughout this message, I promise you this. You're going to experience the glory of God's redemption, and you're going to find hope for bumbling goofballs like me and you and Peter, who we're going to look at in a second, who tend to mess things up more than we get right, and uh, who tend to need God's grace every hour more than we would care to admit. So as you guys turn to Luke chapter 22, I want to extend the grace of Jesus and the redemption of Jesus, Um, and, and I believe that today God wants to speak that into your life. I believe so passionately that this whole week I've been tingling, literally shaking as I've been preparing for this. And I believe God has a word for you this morning. Um, So as you're turning to Luke 22, the context of what we're talking about here is Jesus had just sat down and ate the Passover meal with his disciples. His last meal here on earth before he was going to be crucified, and he knew it. But they didn't. And, and he says a lot of things. He prays a lot of things. He tells them to the, that the, great, the greatest among them is going to be like the, the servant. And he prays uh, so many different things. In fact, in this upper room discourse, he prays for you and me, the church that is to come. Uh, in John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. Um, and so we jump into the text in verse 24 here. As the disciples hear all of this, and Jesus is talking about the greatest in the kingdom, but that his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. And they hear this, verse 24, and a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And I can only imagine that conversation um, because you, you got these guys who have done and seen the most amazing things ever. And you probably got to answer like, yeah, I just cast out a demon, so I should probably be the greatest. Like, I'm going to be the, the exorcist in heaven or, you know, like, Peter's over here. But it's like, um, but yeah, I saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And John's like, but I was there too, so I should probably be the greatest. Maybe we'll have seats on either side of Jesus. And Peter's probably like, Psh. I walked on water. Mic drop. And, um, and I can only imagine the, the conversation piece going on how that conversation went, because, I mean, if any of us entered that conversation, we brought a, definitely would have lost. These guys actually did some pretty cool stuff. So they're talking about, like, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom that Jesus will set up? And, and side note right here, they still think that this kingdom is actually an earthly military kingdom that Jesus is going to set up just as soon as he overthrows the Romans and establishes Israel as the, the greatest reigning kingdom in all of earth. And Jesus sets it up in Jerusalem. And they think when Jesus is king, when he puts the crown on, we are going to be sitting on thrones here on this earth in a couple years. That's the Messiah that they think they're actually following right now. And as we should be greatest in the kingdom, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, And the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. 
You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. And they're like, yes, that you may eat and drink in my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, high five. Like, woo. Simon, Simon. And Jesus comes in. Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've returned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison and to die with you. Like, when's this battle happening? What are you talking about? Like, when I've returned strength? Like, I'm ready to go now. Let's go. Come on. I mean, I know that the Romans are, like, right outside. Um, let's go take them down. You've been talking about this kingdom for a while. Let's, let's do it. And so as our text opens, the disciples here are vying for power about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. But also at the same time, keep in mind, Satan as well is vying for power in his earthly kingdom. Because remember, Genesis 3.15, God promises the serpent, Satan, that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush his head. And he knows that that's Jesus. He's been preparing for this moment. He's vying for power because he doesn't want to lose this fight. Like hundreds of years He's been preparing for this. So at the same time that the disciples are saying, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Vying for position and power. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, both Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. And, and just a, an interesting note on the text here. Um, it's not really clear in English, unless maybe you're from Texas, but when Jesus says, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, it's a you plural, like y'all. Satan has demanded to have y'all that he may sift you all like wheat. He's saying it specifically to Simon. Simon, Satan wants all of you. He's demanded to have you all that he may sift you like wheat. Why? Because Satan knows in this moment that if the disciples make it through what he's about to put Jesus through and they're still with Jesus, his kingdom doesn't stand a chance. He knows that if the disciples make it through with Jesus and they make more disciples and they make more disciples and the church lives on and you are here today at Welland Lake Community Church that his kingdom is doomed because you are here serving the living God. Simon, Satan has demanded to have all of you. And so Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you've returned, strengthen your brothers. And then it happens. You've got these two kingdoms that are really just reinforcing each other, building up their forces, vying for power, and then it happens, Jesus proclaims, Peter, verse 34, no, yep, 34, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, he's just like, Jesus, I'm I'm ready to die for you, and he's like, actually, you're going to deny me that you even know me three times. I can only imagine the tension in the room at that moment where they're like, yeah! And Peter just drops the mic with the I walked on water bomb and then he goes, but you are going to be the one who denies me. And I can only imagine in that moment Peter is just kind of stunned and like, what? No, no. You have no idea how much I do for you, Jesus, in this kingdom. 
Verse 35, and he said, um, actually, I'm just going to jump ahead to verse 37. And Jesus is proclaiming, but I tell you that Scripture has to be fulfilled in me because I was numbered with the transgressors so that what is written about me must have its fulfillment. And he said, look, Jesus, there are two swords. And Jesus said, it's enough. And so they came and they went out to the Mount of Olives, verse 39, as was his custom, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place... He went off to pray and said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And just as they go, Peter and the disciples take a power nap, getting ready to brandish the swords. Like They, they know a battle's coming. They can feel it in Jesus' tension, in his voice, in his mannerisms. It's kind of obvious Jesus is preparing for something. And if their Messiah is preparing for something, so should they. And so they take this power nap and they're ready to go. They get their swords at their side. And then they hear the marching of the troops. And while Jesus was still speaking, because he, he came back and said, what, Why are you still sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and at the very front of the crowd was Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to passionately give him a lover's kiss. That's what the original text, the meaning of the original text actually kind of conveys is that it was a passionate lover's kiss that Judas leans in with all of his betrayal and deceitfulness and the heaviness of his stinky breath leans in and just lays a wet one on Jesus to go take that. And in that moment, Jesus says, Judas, would you betray your friend? Would you betray your teacher? Would you betray your God? Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And in the treacherousness of the moment, those around him saw what was about to happen. And one of them says, Lord, shall we strike? And Peter says, oh, let's go for it! And just takes this kill shot at Malchus's head. Cuts off the ear. Most commentators believe he was actually going straight for the head shot and missed. Yeah, And this whoop! Out goes the ear, and you know, he's like gushing blood out the side of his head. And Jesus picks up and says, No more of this, heals it. And in the act of Peter committing his greatest act of service for Jesus in his mind, Jesus, I'll do anything for you, I'll go into battle, I'll die for you. Jesus says, You're in the wrong battle, no more of this, Simon. This is not how we fight. And the more that this cosmic battle between light and darkness took on a military look in the garden, the disciples see what is about to happen. And pay attention to that word, to, to, to see, to look. It happens like five or six times here in this text. And the disciples see what's about to happen, and what they perceive with their natural mind is that their military Messiah is about to lose the greatest battle he is ever preparing for. And they are not about to let that happen. But they had no idea of the power of the real enemy and the magnitude was of about what was about to happen. Because see, Jesus knew that in order to win the war, he had to submit to capture and eventually to death. Jesus knew he had to lose this battle. It was necessary in winning the war. But Peter, he didn't see it that way, right? 
He thought that losing this battle was just as great as losing the war. This was the greatest thing that they had been preparing for. Finally, the Messiah is going to take action. And so he brandishes his sword. God, if you're not going to do something, I know you need my sword. But I think we do that sometimes too, don't we? God, I know you need me brandishing my sword of this pointing finger. God, I know you need my disapproving comments. God, I know you need me to stick my nose into the middle of this conflict and sort it out in your name on Facebook. Praise Him. And we attack others thinking that Jesus needs our swords in His battle. And I think often... The swords we wield tend to define us, at least in the eyes of the world. The swords we wield often have a way of defining us to the world that's watching. Pay close attention. You two up in the balcony. Um, Pay close attention to what I'm about to say because believe this is straight from God. That God has given us a voice in this world. God has given us a place in His kingdom. But often the voice that we're given to this world, we use in such a way that we are fighting our own battles. So that the louder we talk, the more the world tends to tune us out. And by the time we figure out what battle we're actually fighting in, it's too late, no one's listening that we tend to be labeled as the anti-gay, anti-abortion, anti-liberal, anti-this, anti-that, and the world knows more about what we're against than what we're for. And they've stopped listening. Often it's the swords we wield that tend to define us. And this is why Jesus had to rebuke Peter in this moment. No more of this, Peter! It's not how we fight. This battle is not about this right now. Now, to Peter's credit, he was the only disciple who followed Jesus to the trial. What I find is interesting is that according to the book of Matthew, Peter goes to the trial extremely depressed, totally confused, disillusioned, wondering what in the world he even is fighting for anymore. Wondering what in the world he's even doing here. According to Matthew chapter 25, verse 26, verse 58, Matthew says, Peter sat down with the guards to see the end. Well, here goes. Jesus just gave himself up. We're done. And I think maybe some of you here today are wondering, man, what am I even fighting for anymore? What am I doing here? And I believe that in this moment, you can experience more hope and redemption than you ever thought possible by meeting eyes with Jesus. Because what's happening here is fascinating. Peter is in very dangerous company uh, because anybody at that moment could have seen him and turned him into the authorities as being with Jesus, the one who is on trial right now, for blasphemy and slander against the Roman governor and the king. 
And Peter sits down to see the end. And the servant girl sees him. And then she looks intently at him. And I think, as I just pause here for a second, we are more visible to the world than we care to think sometimes. That the world sees us, and sometimes we think, oh, maybe they won't know I follow Jesus. Like, maybe they won't notice my bumper sticker if I pass them. You know, maybe they won't notice uh, me and come and visit me in church someday if I'm rude to this cashier or whatever. Like, I think sometimes we think we're less visible to the world than we really are, and Peter sits down and immediately someone recognizes him as being with Jesus. Jesus has that effect on people. <laughs> and she sees him, and she looks intently at him, and she's like, aren't you? She's like, no, I am not. And he says, I don't even know him. And each time someone else saw Peter in the text, the confusion in his heart became louder. At first he just claimed to not know Jesus. And then he claimed to not even be with him. And finally, in despair, he was calling down curses upon this poor guy, hoping to dispel any notion of any similarity at all between him and Jesus. And in that very moment, as he's bleepity bleep, I don't know this bleepity bleep guy, and what do you bleepity bleep think you're talking about? I think he did not hear the shuffling of the feet behind him as Jesus is being led out after his trial. And the rooster crows. And Peter immediately knows, and he turns. And Jesus looks into his soul. And in that moment, something inside of Peter died. It was the look from Jesus. You guys know the look? The, the, the look of implied, deep, understood meaning? I get the look a lot at home. Um, you know what I mean? I get the look when I... <laughs> I got to stand on this side of the pulpit. <laughs> I get the look when I do stuff I shouldn't, you know, like dance in public. The look... You lock eyes and you know. No one has to say a word. And you know. There is deep, understood meaning. And the rooster crows. And Peter turns and Jesus looks at him and sees way past him and sees deep into his soul. And there is deep, understood meaning. This is the look. And the meaning was not lost on Peter. Something inside of him died in that moment. And that was Simon, the natural man. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. Satan wanted Simon, the natural man, in all of his arrogance and self-reliance and brash boldness and just jumping into things. Satan wanted Simon, the natural man. And in that moment, Simon died. Because from here on out, Scripture actually records a completely different Peter. Gone was the arrogance. Gone was the self-reliance. And Peter, a new man, is left in his place. I think sometimes that look from Jesus is the only thing that it takes to turn us around, right? 
It's the only thing that it takes. Because in that moment, not only did Simon the natural man die, but there was a link preserved between Jesus and Simon and Peter. I mean, Because remember, Jesus has said, I've prayed for you, Peter. I've prayed for you that you may come and strengthen your brothers. And in the garden, when Peter was indulging in his post-dinner nap, Jesus was praying for Peter. And so in this moment, the only thing that kept Peter from snapping like Judas in a deep sorrow of repentance in his heart was the prayers of Jesus. But in one powerful encounter with Jesus, Simon the natural man died and Peter, the man of God, remained and became the strength of those around him. Because remember, Jesus not only prophesied Peter being sifted like wheat and that Peter would fall away, but that Peter would also return and strengthen his brothers. Simon died, Peter remained, and he became the pillar of the church. This church, the church of Jesus Christ, is built upon Simon. Jesus said, I'm going to build the church upon you, Peter. Simon, Peter, the man who tended to screw most things up, the man who tended to rush into the wrong battles, this church is built upon him. And you are a part of that church. This is not a place to come and see people be awesome. This is not a place to come and fake a smile. This is not a place that everyone who is in here is perfect. This is not a museum of saints. If you came for the first time this Sunday, you are in good company uh, because this place is a place of messed up people. We're a bunch of sinners in need of a Savior. This is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And this church is built upon a total screw-up. And Jesus said, I am going to make you the leader of this church. I'm going to build my church upon you. Simon had to die. In order for Jesus' greatest mission, the church, to ever become a reality. Jesus had to lose a battle in order to win the war. If you don't get anything else out of this, if you don't write anything else down, if you don't tweet or Facebook anything else, do it with this one sentence. This is the big idea, everything I've been kind of funneling towards here. Um, His kingdom thrives when we let our kingdoms die. Jesus' kingdom moves on, advances, it thrives, it is great when the people in His kingdom let their own fights and battles and kingdoms die. When you are bold enough to say, I give up all of this to follow the one who paid it all for me. His kingdom thrives when we let our kingdoms die. Why? What do I mean? When you're in the wrong battle and you fight really, really, really well, you're gaining negative ground. The little battles we fight for our own kingdom often tend to lose us our witness in his kingdom. Because when our verbal language says God loves you, but our nonverbals scream, but I don't. We're in a total wrong battle. His kingdom thrives when we let our kingdoms die. Yes, it is supposed to be scary. Yes, 
It is supposed to be faith in a God who will provide for you even though you're not fighting for the things you really care about. Even though you're not fighting for your needs, God will still continue to fight for you. It is His kingdom and you are serving Him because He will always provide for you. Amen. Yes. Heaven does not gain much ground when we fight in the wrong battles. There is something so much bigger than any one individual here. That is why it is so important that it's not just you listening to a sermon, listening to worship music on your own at home. You came to church this morning because you're part of something so much bigger. You're part of a kingdom that is moving forward and is gaining ground faster than any other kingdom has ever gained ground before. More people are coming to know Jesus this minute than in history ever. And you are a part of something so much bigger than yourself. You, you could sit home and listen to a better speaker than me. You could sit home and listen to a better worship band that's touring the country. Or, and you would totally miss out. It's about what God is doing through us. His kingdom thrives when we let our kingdoms die. Really fast, I want to give you a couple application points that we see in the text. But the question of the day is this. Do you dare to follow Jesus in his kingdom? Do you dare to follow Jesus in his kingdom and let your kingdoms die? Number one, if you dare to follow Jesus, here's three promises that we see uh, happen with Peter that are promises for you. Number one promise. If you dare to follow Jesus in his kingdom, your kingdoms will crumble. By definition, being in his kingdom, he is the king, he calls the shots, he makes the rules, and you obey them. Uh, Being in his kingdom and following King Jesus means that you are giving up your rights to define success and failure in your natural earthly ways. Your kingdoms, the things that you fight for, the plans that you make, the rules that you follow, your kingdoms must die. They have to crumble Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of men. God did not have to become a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Have this mind in you. Are you ready for this, church? Are you ready to boldly lay your life in all the natural things that you fight for down to death to make his kingdom great? This starts now. Before you even get up off your seat. Before you ever go out to eat dinner. This actually, this was a very hard lesson for me to learn. And actually, this week on Friday, I was... um, I went to bed really grumpy about something that happened at home, and it was not even anybody's fault. It was just my fault for being grumpy about it. Um, and I chose to wake up grumpy and wanted to hold it over my wife's head. Um, and I drive to work, didn't say a word to her. And I get here, and I go to write this exact passage, or part of my sermon. And I'm about to like type, and I'm like, I can't. Like, I froze. Like, the Holy Spirit was just forbidding me to write because I had to let my kingdom die. And I wasn't ready to do that. The sword that I was so ready to start wielding once I got home after work, 
I had to wait until Jesus pried my fingers off. I let my kingdom die and I set my sword down. It's hard to pry your fingers off the swords you love to wield. But I promise you this. Number one, if you dare to follow Jesus and his kingdom, yours will crumble. Number two, if you dare to follow Jesus and his kingdom, you will find supernatural strength. Like I said, from here on out, a different Peter is recorded. And actually later on in John chapter 21, Jesus even restores Peter and says, Hey Peter, you remember that time you denied me three times? I'm going to ask you three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Go feed my sheep. I still believe in you, Peter. I'm still praying for you, Peter. I still have strength for you, Peter. I still have a mission for you, Peter. And church today, I don't care how many times you've laid down your denial of Jesus. I don't care how many times you've messed up or screwed up or flubbed up. Jesus said, if you still love me, I've still got a mission for you. But you've got to let your kingdom die. If you dare to follow Jesus in his kingdom, you will find supernatural strength. Check this out. Gone in Peter, like I said, was the arrogance or the independence or the self-reliance. In their place was the power of God coursing freely through Peter's heart and mind. Listen to the man who previously was cowering at the fire. Acts 2, 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter standing in front of thousands of people. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. If you dare to follow Jesus in his kingdom, you will find supernatural strength. Jesus lives to continually make intercession for those who follow him. Romans 8.34, who is here to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, consistently interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for you 24-7 around the clock. Consistently, Jesus lives to strengthen you. So if you follow Jesus in his kingdom, you'll find supernatural strength in Jesus. And final promise, number three, if you dare to follow Jesus in his kingdom, you will be the strength to those around you. You are the ones that, Peter, or that Satan feared. You are the you all that Satan demanded to have so he could sift you like wheat. He's scared of you. Why? Because you will be the strength to those around you. Remember the beauty of the redemption that Jesus offered Peter? John chapter 21. Of course, it was Christ's prayer through him. But then he went on to be the pillar of the church and the strength of everybody else around him. When times were tough, they looked to Peter. Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, when he was having trouble, he went back to Jerusalem to find strength with Peter. This, most of this would not have happened had Paul not been going back to Peter, the pillar of the church, the strength of those around him. When you dare to follow Jesus in his kingdom, 
He gives you a place. And you are able to speak hope and truth and faith and life into those around you. If you still love Jesus, He still has a mission for you. And you can be the strength to those around you. This can, pardon me, this can be the hospital of sinners. This can be an amazing place because you are going to be the strength to those around you. I tell you one thing, when you're around a Christian who's absolutely uplifting and life-giving, doesn't it make you like so much more in love with Jesus? Jesus designed it that way because the more you're in love with Him, the more it overflows to those around you. And the more it overflows to those around you, the more they're in love with Him. And all of a sudden, this is a place where the name of Jesus is lifted high and the God of Israel and the God of the church is made great and the Holy Spirit begins to work inside of us and signs and wonders begin to happen. People get saved because you chose to be the strength of those around you and because you chose to let your kingdom and the battles you fight crumble to the ground. I'll end with this. The war on sin and death was won when Jesus carefully chose his battle. Jesus lost on purpose that Friday night. Jesus lost, went to the cross, and died on purpose. Why? He chose to lose the battle on the cross so he could win you forever. So choose to follow him today. Choose to lay your kingdoms down because his kingdom thrives when we let our kingdoms die. Jesus, thank you so much for your love and your redemption and the grace that you offer us every single day. God, I pray for every single one of these saints here, the chosen ones in you. God, you knew them from before the foundations of the earth. I pray for every single one of them, Lord, that you would strengthen them with your Holy Spirit and that you would empower each one of us to be the voice of hope and faith and life in this world around us. God, I pray for those here today who are feeling lost, who are feeling like they don't know what they're fighting for anymore, that you would strengthen them, that you would come to them and give them the mission, Lord. Pick them up and give them hope. God, I pray for those who are feeling just worn out in the battle, feeling just totally beat down. God, that you would, again, lift them up and give them life and provide hope and provide healing. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do amazing things in each one of these awesome people here this morning, God. I pray that you would be lifted high in our midst today. Amen.